We try to keep you uh, informed as to what's going on with the latest in COVID-19. Dr. Daniel Call, who's joined us before from the University of Michigan, professor of internal medicine on the line with us right now. Dr. Call, thanks so much for coming on with us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, we find ourselves in an interesting inflection point. We are rapidly approaching the uh, percentage of the population that many officials were hoping we would get to, but maybe not as fast and maybe not as high as had once been hoped. I saw a piece today that said we're just going to have to accept a certain amount of COVID in society and live with the risks that go with that. It is, is it your opinion as we, as we get closer and we see uh, the differences between people who want to get vaccinated and not, that that is probably an accurate prediction? Yeah, it seems like that's uh, going to be the most likely uh, outcome at this point because there's a significant portion of the population that seems um, pretty strongly opposed to getting vaccines, at least in, in surveys, kind of under any circumstance. To, uh, they declined to get a COVID vaccine. So what happens then? I mean, uh, they're the people mostly at risk for it, right? They, 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 they risk spreading it to other people who don't have vaccines. But in terms of the people who have vaccines, does that present much of a danger since there doesn't seem to be very much penetration of either vaccinated people or even people who have had COVID in terms of getting it again? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I think the risk to vaccinated people in general is very low. However, uh, about somewhere between three, four percent of the population has a immunosuppressing condition. So that may be that they've had an organ transplant or a stem cell transplant or they have a autoimmune disease and they're on drugs that suppress the immune system. And those folks, um, it looks like, depending on the exact circumstance, may not respond very well to vaccines. We don't know fully yet. So unfortunately, there is some portion of the population that cannot be protected by vaccines. And their risk is really related then to, uh, in part, maybe related to how much COVID is circulating. And that's really determined by how many of us get vaccinated. So the idea with herd immunity was that we would get to the point where so many people had it that it, there weren't any new hosts to find. And then, of course, once you add vaccines to that, it's, well, now so many people are vaccinated, so there aren't any new hosts to find there. Isn't it true then that even if we have a certain percentage of the population is not going to get vaccinated ever, chances are eventually they're going to get COVID and then they'll fall in the category of people who had COVID and therefore aren't hosts. So isn't it possible to sort of achieve that same herd immunity thing just a little slower, even if people refuse to get vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, I think something like that could happen. I, I, I think one of the problems you get into is, you know, there may be some animal reservoir for COVID. We know like minks were infected. We know that, you know, it's been seen in, in uh, certain dog and cat species. And so when you get into an animal reservoir, it gets kind of hard to sort of eradicate something. So there may be kind of a low level of circulation, but I don't think it'll be something that will really pop up into affecting the vast majority of people's, uh, you know, daily lives. And what is your latest information on how long these vaccines that many of us have taken are going to last? Will we need boosters? Will people who had COVID and got the vaccine be immune for life and not need boosters again? Tell us what, 
what's the latest on that? Yeah, I don't think we know all the answers to those questions. I think what's what's critical is to recognize that it's not kind of an on-off thing, right? And so what I mean by that is that if you have enough protection from vaccines that prevents you from getting ill enough that you have to go into the hospital, ill enough that you need oxygen, then COVID becomes a little bit more like um, all the other respiratory an viruses that circulate, yeah, with a certain periodicity. And so it's certainly possible that that vaccines that we already have will achieve that, perhaps even without um, a whole lot of boosting. We don't know that for sure yet. So, you know, I don't think people should be, uh, you know, getting all scared that, you know, all of a sudden you have no protection and it's kind of an on-off switch. And if you get COVID, you're going to get real sick. Our, our immune systems are pretty clever at remembering uh, what they've seen, but it can increase circulation in the population and numbers can start to go up. But what you really want to look at is is hospitalization. And of course, variants start to come into play right. with that because they have some ability to infect people more quickly and some ability to uh, evade some of the immune protection. Do they have any record yet of the people that had COVID early, just say last January or February, that have lost some of their antibodies or immunity now? Are they starting to see anybody who has, you know, now lost what they had? Sure, yeah. So having had COVID, sort of getting it in the first wave, especially in Europe where it was a little more discreet, a wave and then a lull and then another wave, um, you see about an 80% protection, 85%, similar to the vaccines in getting COVID again in the second wave. But again, most of those cases didn't represent serious disease. Uh, so there was still some level of, of protection. Do you think that uh, there'll be a point where we're not going to have the data on this the way that we do? Like, I, I constantly see the reports in the newspapers and everything else. This many new cases reported, this many deaths, this many new cases, this many. But that's because people are, are, are getting tested uh, and I, I keep saying to myself, well, if we did this with the flu every year, that everybody went and got tested to see if they had the flu or not, and then we kept track of how many people were dying from the flu, we'd start to see some numbers uh, that, that maybe not as high as, 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 as what has been recently with COVID-19, but pretty soon when the numbers get down, if 60,000 people a year die from the flu, then there's got to be, you know, a, a hundred or so every day for a stretch of time anyhow. Uh, and, and yet nobody ever tests for the flu. So we don't ever see these reports of every everyday thing. Is, is that going to fade out with COVID and it'll become more of an anecdotal thing like, oh, yeah, I knew somebody got the flu, got really sick and he died? Well, you know, there actually is a tracking system for flu. I just don't think you see it in the news very often. And so the way you do that is you track influenza-like illnesses, so they have kind of a clinical definition in certain clinics that you've set up around the country, and then you assume that those clinics, you know, are picked to represent the larger population. Yeah, but then you're just extrapolating data. You're yeah. not actually using real numbers. Well, they're real tests that are being done. So, you know, in, in these, in these uh, centers, there's, a, there's a, a yearly flu surveillance system. So we have a very good idea how many cases there are, even though the vast majority of people may not get um, uh, a test done. But, you know, most of the people come in the hospital. I test people for flu, you know, all winter long every winter. So we do, we do get an idea. And I suspect we'll have a similar thing with, with, uh, with COVID. COVID because um, we'll want to 
kind of keep an eye on it, see what the circulation is, and you know, observe for immune evasion. And that's how you can figure out too uh, questions about do people need a boat booster, and then obviously hospitalization rates are, are a critical component because you know that just reflects severity of disease right. and takes out of the equation you know how many people are choosing to get tested. What about kids? As we're talking to Dr. Daniel Call from the U of M, uh, we see now that we're vaccinating uh, kids as as young as what twelve? Is it yep. that we're going from twelve to seventeen? Uh, first of all, what are we seeing with that? And from what I understood, we've seen some kind of weird numbers spiking up, then down, then up again with teenagers. And then the second part of that question is, do we feel that we really need to move to younger children to get down to kids who are six years old or whatever? Are, are we potentially running even more of a risk with a vaccine that is so new on children who are so young? Well, first, you know, about the vaccine, um, you know, Yes, it's new, but we're also closing in on, what, 150, 175 million doses or more than that, actually. Um, you know, now since December and the clinical trials going back months before that. And there's really, frankly, there's no vaccine where you see much in the way of long-term side effects. There have been things that were reported, but they've all been debunked, for example, autism. So, and we've got a very robust you know, reporting system to pick up adverse events, and it's worked. You know, we've picked up perhaps some cases of myocarditis. Um, we certainly picked up this funny uh, bleeding, clotting business clot, with the yeah. with the adenovirus. So that that was an example of success of our uh, tracking system because to pick out you know six. 10, 15 cases in millions of people, you can imagine, very difficult. Right, but now, aren't adult uh, yep. systems different than children's? Uh, oh, well, sure. So, I mean, I think we need to, we don't know yet in children. So the first thing you have to do is complete the, the trial in, in people who are younger than 12 and carefully look at that safety and efficacy and make sure you're comfortable with it. And so that's an ongoing process. And maybe something will be found in children where you can say, you know, for, for children under 12 who especially, in, you know, if they're not infants, you know, very rarely themselves have much of a problem with COVID um, in terms of serious disease. Maybe it's not worth it to vaccinate right. those people. I think that's that's still to be determined. Um, I mean, personally, my, my kids are just a little bit older. My youngest is 18. I mean, I got them all uh, vaccinated without any real uh, uh, concern. Um, and I'm not too concerned with what I've seen uh, in 12 to 17 year olds where there's a little bit more of a problem. And it certainly helps with things like camps and schools and athletics uh, when the kids are vaccinated and you're not right. having outbreaks. All right. Well, thank you for all those updates. It's always great to speak with you and we appreciate the time. I'm sure we'll talk with you again. My pleasure. Take care. Dr. Daniel Call from the University of Michigan, professor of internal medicine.